Hi, everyone. Welcome to the December 10th, 2021 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right to it and not waste any time. And speaking of not wasting any time, as school districts determine their COVID protocols, noticeable differences have been noted from district to district. Douglas County School District has voted to make the use of masks optional, despite the threat of a lawsuit by a parent of a child with disabilities. Meanwhile, the Jeffco School Board has received over 100 complaints, claiming some schools aren't enforcing masks enough. Patty Cahoon from Westward. The move in Dulles County was not a surprise. The, the new school board that was elected in November was just sworn in. This is what they campaigned on. So it was a headline, but it was not surprising news. But right next door to Jeffco, which are doing the, the basically just the opposite thing, having people wanting to uh, see more enforcement, was at least interesting. From what we saw from both counties this week, uh, what do you make of it? Well, Douglas County continues to, oh, just be a font of amusement for people who are in journalism right now and amazement for people in the, in the neighboring counties. It was not going to be a surprise that they would turn over that mandate so quickly and just say this is it because that's what the, that camp group had run on in Douglas County. And when they came in, I think it took them two days to change the rules. There are complaints from some parents in Douglas County who would like to see masks. There is the one lawsuit because a parent who thinks their child is in danger. And it is the flip of Jefferson County. We talked to their spokesperson. They've gotten 160 complaints from people who would like to see the mask mandate enforced in the schools because they're concerned about the safety of their kids. There's still debate over just how efficient masks are, but we know they help. Remember at this time last year, that was about all we had, and we knew they were helping somewhat. And you would like to see kids in schools rather than at home, because clearly teaching is better for both the students and the teachers when they're there. And if the masks help, they should be wearing the masks. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. I can't imagine that a parent of a child with disabilities threatening to sue over a mask mandate is is a new concept just fresh to Colorado. I mean, these are questions happening across the entire country, but maybe I'm wrong. Is this a new concept and not just that one part of the story, but is, do you see that as a significant next step in this issue? Yeah, in fact, we, we talked about this a, a, several weeks ago um, before the, the elections. Uh, the, the Biden administration has been suing uh, on the same theory uh, against Texas, saying that the Americans with Disabilities Act requires schools to have, have mask mandates, which, as having done one ADA case in my life, I would say that that's a stretch, but it's not an impossible claim. I think that the key thing is this is the great thing about having locally elected school boards. So different families with, uh, can uh, vote for the kind of, of schools they, they want, and, and, and that, that's proper. The best data we have on schools is the study from the Colorado Department of Public Health and the Environment that came out a few months ago that said, based on their data, the difference between schools with mask optional versus mask mandates was an infection rate of about, difference in infection rates of about two students per 1,000, which is helpful, but it, it's not that large. There's also, for kids with disabilities and everybody else, a huge learning detriment from having people's faces covered, and that includes kids with learning disabilities who might be in fourth or fifth grade who can learn language better when they can see the teacher's lips move, and includes all kids six and under, because at that age, the 
two hemispheres of the brain are still learning how to connect, and as they're learning language, seeing faces is huge. And it's also important for 14-year-olds who might be a little socially awkward and can pick up social cues from other people better when they can see their faces. Eric Sonderman, a longtime political analyst here at PBS 12, also a columnist for Colorado Politics and the Gazette newspapers. Uh, Eric, we, Douglas County has uh, rightfully uh, been a uh, top headline around here at this table for most of this year. Uh, but Jeffco is usually a side story. Here we have something where there is a mask mandate, but does it have any teeth? And that's another hard part about this is you have people who may want a mask mandate, but do you want to be the referee? Do you want to be the mask uh, police officer in the school. I wouldn't sign up for that job. Um, are we going to get more analysis about even if a mandate exists, it all comes down to the teeth in it? I think that's a good point, Dominic. I think what we're seeing just the number of times around this table we've talked about school districts and mass mandates is symptomatic of what's going on in this country where schools have become such the epicenter of debate. You can look at the governor's race in Virginia that largely pivoted on that issue. And, uh, you know, as you look to the next year, we're going to be talking about school boards, school districts, not to mention mass, um, many, many times around this table. I agree with David's point to a certain extent in terms of, you know, let the voters of Douglas County choose one path, let the voters of Denver County or Jeffco or wherever it is choose, um, choose an alternate path. But that is looking at it through a political lens. The virus itself doesn't give a darn, as I've said on previous occasions, about the politics of this. The virus is going to do, and the virus is going to proceed and mutate, etc., as it will. We can have all the political debates we want that doesn't change some of the underlying biological facts of life in dealing, uh, in dealing with this pandemic. Uh, I'll be curious to see how this lawsuit in Jefferson County proceeds. I mean, David and Penn, uh, you know, can analyze it from a legal uh, perspective, uh, but it's not the first time we've touched this issue, and Lord knows it will not be the last. Well, a uh, perfect segue to our fourth panelist, longtime panelist, Penfield Tate, former state lawmaker, attorney with Tate Law. Penn, it's great to have you here. Um, many social sticky issues in our country's history have been settled or at the very least advanced in a court of law. When we're looking at mask mandates and uh, uh, disabled children and what should happen, do you think courts will be the ultimate decider of the issue? I don't think they'll be the ultimate deciders, but they will weigh in here. Because the problem we have, and I agree with much of what's been said around the table, um, we've taken a science matter and turned it into a political issue. What we do know is regardless of tenths of percent percentages, vaccines work and masks work. And so what we do know is if you vaccinate, if you wear a mask, you reduce your risk of infection and you re reduce the risk of passing it on to other people. Schools are already problematic because you have a bunch of little kids who don't necessarily observe boundaries, particularly given their age, and they're just all over each other in a friendly way. And so if there's a disease, it's going to spread like wildfire. And we have elevated this to this false political choice of individual freedom versus the public good. This is a scientific issue. People are dying. And so the question becomes, what do you want to do to prevent that? I have no problem and quarrel, and I support locally elected school boards. But I will tell you as a school board, if you decide you're opposed to a mask mandate, you have to be prepared to run a bunch of other issues. You're going to lose teachers. You're going to lose some students. You're going to get some lawsuits. And then you're going to have to ask yourself, was it worth it just over getting rid of a mask mandate? 
A local nonprofit organization called Unite for Colorado is facing scrutiny this week. According to the Colorado Secretary of State's office, the organization violated Colorado election laws by donating millions of dollars to conservative measures. Unite for Colorado has been charged a $40,000 fine and has been given an order to reveal their donors. David, we start with you on this one. It's much more complicated than that little explanation. There's different election laws that are included. What you have to do as a political nonprofit because you can do certain stuff, but can it be the focus of what you do? How much of that counts as a focus versus just something you do? I'm going to let these four wonderful smart people explain that much better than I can. Get us started with what we need to know about some of the details here. Okay, Article 28 of the Colorado Constitution is the part that focuses on controlling and limiting political speech. Under that article, something if an organization has a, quote, a major purpose of supporting or opposing ballot initiatives, then it has to be then it's called an independent expenditure committee and has to make lots of disclosures, including all of its donors and, and its spending. There was a case actually involving the Independence Institute of us against then-Secretary of State Scott Gessler, where the court ruled that the Independence Institute is not an independent expenditure committee, because even though we get involved in ballot issues for sure, we do many, many other things and we're formed for lots of other purposes, which we, we still carry out. Similarly, the, the Bell Center, which is a Bell Policy Center, which is a left-wing organization whose philosophy seems to be that the government doesn't tax people enough overall, uh, they're the same kind of thing. They're very involved in, poli- in ballot issues, but also do lots of other things. They brought a complaint under Article 28 against Unite for Colorado, and they said, this group, no, they're not multi-purpose. They're, all they really do is ballot issues. And that complaint goes to a hearing officer at the Secretary of State's office. And so far through the Secretary of State's process, that complaint has been upheld against Unite for Colorado. Unite for Colorado is going to appeal, and it will be up to ultimately a judge to say, is Unite for Colorado more like Bell and more like Independence Institute, or is it really only a, a ballot issue group? Yeah, that's breaking down a complicated issue very well. Thank you for that. Erica, we look at the political ramifications of this. It's, it's back to Colorado's, I think, sometimes pretty confusing election fundraising laws. Does this have an effect on other groups, be they, be they political nonprofits or independent expenditure groups, for next year, which is bound to bring in millions of dollars to the election? Sure, it has an effect, depending on how it comes out. I mean, this whole game of campaign finance, which is a rather murky game and involves plenty of side doors and back doors to avoid uh, or evade transparency, is a constant game of cat and mouse. And you move the rules and you adapt and you move them again. Um, and, and the game of cat and mouse goes on. I have no love for dark money groups. I'm all about disclosure, all about transparency. Anything that uh, promotes those, I'm in favor of. I think David's legal analysis, I, you know, take zero exception. I thought he hit the nail on the head. My view here is that no matter what ruling comes out of the Secretary of State, but particularly if it's an adverse ruling to a conservative group, a Republican-affiliated group, it is not going to have credibility. It's going to be looked at with suspicion because of this particular Secretary of State's office. Jenna Griswold is a very high-profile, highly, highly partisan person. 
who has run her office in a very high-profile, highly partisan manner, much unlike a whole litany of previous secretaries of state of both parties, but mainly Republican in this state, who have been election administrators first and politicians not even second, politicians ninth or tenth down their list of priorities. Jenna Griswold is a politician first and an election administrator way down her list. So that damages the credibility of the office on any issue like this, and I think that's the real problem here. Penn, uh, political fundraising shenanigans are a bipartisan issue. It can happen on any side of the coin, and you can find organizations going to try to get the other side uh, with complaints. It, it's, it's, it's a equal opportunity game. But what do you think this is going to do, this particular situation is going to do uh, for future work, especially with a huge election upcoming next year? You know, it's going to further confuse the situation because regardless of the ruling and the ultimate result, it's going to generate more uncertainty out there in the political fundraising atmosphere. And, and, and the problem is fundamental, and, and Eric began to touch on it. Once upon a time, we had a campaign finance system where you gave as much as you wanted to the candidate of your choice or the issue of your choice, and they had to disclose every dollar from every person and every source so that even if you didn't like the sources of money, you knew where every dollar came from. Then, in the name of reform, we started convoluting the situation. And that's where all these back doors and side doors and everything else comes in. And it creates issues for candidates also because you have no control over how the side doors and the back doors and the other doors get used. So you're going to get blamed for something that you probably didn't know anything about. And to Eric's point, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Because it's important if you have a set of regulations to enforce them, but what you can't do is enforce them um, in a partisan fashion just because you're trying to suppress one part of the conversation versus another. Patty, I look at another aspect of this is that some of the punishment or issues that comes down for maybe organizations like this will be after the fact. So if you're worried about exposing donors or them not giving money because they don't want to be exposed before the election, but it's not going to happen until afterwards, maybe that's a showing of like there's really no teeth here if I only have to ask for forgiveness and pay a pretty, very small fine if there's millions of dollars at stake. I could be being cynical, not the first time. What do you think? Well, I think maybe the legislature, depending on how this is ultimately ruled, might make some changes. Look at the last Denver election. We had a lot of dark money poured into that campaign. Uh, it didn't do a lot for the, um, the measures they were pushing, but we had no idea who was putting the money in. They did not have to reveal anything. It was close to, you know, it was at least three quarters of a million dollars that was put into uh, a really quixotic attempt to influence public policy when, in fact, it all failed. But people want to know who is supporting things. I think people have a right to know who is supporting things. The old system was good. You can often decide, you might not know how you feel about an issue, but you might know how you feel about that particular donor. So I think we need to reconfigure some of this. It's not a surprise that the Bell Center took this forward. I mean, they had a good point. I don't know if I'd ever equate them with the Independence Institute. We don't need any more exposure. You know, no more transparency for you people. But, um, but he, they had a good point, and I would like to see some lid put on this dark money. That definitely needs exposure. 
Well, at least maybe a good moment to let everyone know that PBS 12 is more than happy to take any sort of donor, whether you want to remain anonymous or public. We'll put your name on a billboard. We'll keep it quiet. Whatever you want to do with your donation, uh, that's happy to be accepted here at PBS 12. Let's get to our next topic. More controversy in the education front as schools prepare for 2022. Colorado has released the first draft of the plans for the rollout of the universal preschool. While it gives a general outline, there are more questions left to be answered. Meanwhile, schools are doubling down on their efforts to encourage parents to step in for teachers in lieu of a shortage of substitutes. Eric, I understand the schools, and it's not new for them to ask parents to come and help out, but I can't imagine that that pitch goes well with a group of parents who spent most of 2020 handling online schooling, uh, probably exhausted from a lot of other things, and say, well, if, if you didn't mind, why, why don't you come in and be a substitute teacher? That is a tough, tough pitch, but the school's got to do what they got to do. You're looking at this. What do you think? Well, first of all, on the preschool piece, what I know about the universal preschool proposal that the Polish administration is starting to roll out, uh, you could fit in a thimble. I'm not going to opine on that greatly, other than it looks like they're going to a system of some degree of local control under a state umbrella, but uh, empowering some local authorities, and I think that is probably good and appropriate. In terms of the shortage of substitute teachers and the shortage of cafeteria workers and the shortage of everything else, it is all symptomatic, Dominic, of this bigger issue we're living through right now. I mean, it is a fundamental paradigm shift in this country. It goes under these various labels, the great resignation, the great quit. Um, but it is, it is really something to behold of what is happening in the labor force and in the job market out there. And I don't think we be- yet begin to have a full understanding of some of those underlying dynamics. You can say, well, let the market sort it out, and if you're not getting people at X hourly fee uh, as a substitute teacher or a daily fee, pay them them X plus uh, an increment and, and let the market get them in the door. But I think there's more to it than that. There's obviously... What do you do with the kids at home? Um, their parents are being called on in ways that parent, to, just to provide for their own kids and supervise the education of their own kids in ways that they haven't. There's fear of COVID. There's fear of the politicization of masks and everything we talked about in the first topic. It is not a one-size-fits-all kind of problem, and uh, schools haven't figured it out. And it seemed that universal uh, pre-K education was pretty popular, and it was a big point for elected leaders last year. But uh, what more needs to come out so that, that can actually be followed through and not, I think, you know, dismissed for not having enough uh, meat on the bone here? No, you know, a beginning is a difficult time in any set of circumstances. I think the universal pre-K is the right thing to do. And I think, to, to Eric's point, having some measure of local control with some state oversight and some state Guidelines is a good way to start, but we all need to be prepared. This isn't going to be perfect the first week of the first year out. It's going to take some tinkering, but it's the sort of things that we need as a society to raise up kids because we're just finding too many kids graduating from high school not equipped to do anything. Um, and, and colleges are becoming remedial places of education now, which is wrong. So we've got to change how K-12 works. But we've also got to and, – and Eric – pointed this out, and we've talked about this, this politicization around the COVID situation is infecting every aspect of society. When you have school districts who are canceling school um, for in the entire district for a day because they don't have enough substitute teachers, that's fear. That's people who don't want to run the risk of getting infected 
going back into a school. And you've got parents who treat school like childcare anyway, so they're upset that they're having to watch their kids pretend to study online or at the kitchen table. And finally, in terms of some of these districts, asking parents to step in and run a class, look, we all went to high school with somebody who we know we don't want to be standing in the front of a classroom <laughs> telling kids anything. But that's what you're going to get. So we, we need to get our arms around this. Penny, I'm remembering my substitute teacher days in high school, which uh, maybe included folks who weren't ready for that class, which they rolled in the TV and VCR, they threw in a movie, and uh, they knew it last the end of class, and that was it. Are, are, are we almost to the point, I mean, not VCRs nowadays, are we, you know, your, your algebra class will now be a, a watch the first hour of Beautiful Mind and call it a day. And in fact, that might be better, not just than some substitutes, but some teachers who are just kind of phoning it in, literally, at this point with Zoom. There, we have to remember the pre-K idea came pre-COVID, and it was one of the things Polis was really pushing. It, in theory, is such a great idea to be able, if the state can afford it, to get good, good education started early for kids. The local control issue we see in Jeffco and Douglas County, it's going to be a really, a really big challenge unless there are guidelines that are strong that the state has handled and that make sense to everybody. Making sense to everybody is almost impossible these days. And jumping into COVID, it's Im- you cannot imagine a place where it's been trickier than schools because you've got the parents you've, with the mask mandate fights. You've got the how you teach remotely. You finally have the kids back in, but now you don't have the teachers back in. And you have kids who are trying to remember what life was like pre-COVID. We all remember some of that, but this is the new normal for them. And... You hope you can get rid of the chaos, have some consistency, have good teachers. I have a niece who's been working the school lunch line for her kids for the past several months just because everyone's so shorthanded. David, in the private sector, pinch points are opportunities for innovation. Do you think this will be an opportunity for innovation? Well, any enterprise, public or private, that is very large and is having trouble accomplishing its main objective, as has been explained, you would say this is not the right time for us to try to expand and take on a, on a whole new thing. We ought to get our, our main job done first, fix, get K-12 through working. Part of the problem on substitute teachers, as explained in a good Denver Post article today, is there's no guarantee that you'll be assigned to the school where your kid goes, and they could get more if they would take those on. The requirement for a bachelor's degree for some substitute teachers I think it's perfectly sensible if you're teaching algebra or high school history. You don't really need a bachelor's degree to teach first grade math or reading. We have a successful preschool program already in the state. It's a voucher program that serves 29,000 students administered by the local districts who can provide the preschool themselves or contract with local providers. It would be better to greatly expand that uh, as a first step under current conditions. We've been a little chatty today, so let's get to our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. A good effort that I want to laud by Colab, which is this collaborative news program in Colorado. Many, many newspapers got involved, media outlets got involved, investigating mental health services in Colorado, especially community health services. Whether or not this incredible series would show that we are at the bottom in so much of mental health services. Whether that led to the resignation of the state's head of behavioral services or not is being debated, but it certainly showed we have a disgraceful system in place. David. 
A couple weeks ago, uh, Krista Kafer, who's been a panelist on the show in the past, wrote an article in the Denver Post that I disagreed with, even though it was well-written, and she explained why she's not going to wear a mask anymore. Some people not only disagreed with it, they tried to get her canceled from everything, including the Denver Post and KBDI and the Post and KBDI, to their credit, have not canceled her for having an intelligent uh, opinion, even if it might be incorrect in some views. We will be seeing Krista in uh, just a few weeks in January. So, yes, uh, I, can, I can confirm because it's what you've heard. Eric. Right on to David. And good, and good for Krista, even if she's wrong. Good for speaking <laughs> up. Uh, this PC culture that we live in, this PC time we live in, and where we have to be so careful of how we refer to people, a sex offenders board in Colorado has now changed the terminology. You are no longer a sexual offender. You are a quote-unquote an adult who commits sexual offenses. I'm glad for that clarification, that clarity. The world is so much a better place. <laughs> in a previous time, there were so many jokes available there, and I'm not going to touch with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> Penn. You know, when I read the story, I couldn't believe it, but former officer Nicholas Hanning, who tased a 75-year-old man in his own house who's wearing boxer shorts, then staged the, the scene to make it look like he had a weapon. Um, and this man now cannot go home, cannot live independently, and his life is essentially ruined. Um, we need to fix policing. Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty? Um, I think it happened right as we were doing this show last week, but former Supreme Court Justice, Colorado Supreme Court Justice Greg Hobbs, who was a water law expert, loved the West, and really a great guy. You know, he was a man of the people, La Fiesta, which is the Mexican restaurant right by here. He would go there every week. He would often bring in other Supreme Court justices and clerks, but just a a real loss for Colorado. David. And uh, former senator and presidential candidate Bob Dole, who, uh, unlike Justice Hobbs, was a very partisan Republican, but even through that partisanship, always put uh, America first. Eric. Here, here to both of those, and I was going to do a shout-out to to Justice Greg Hobbs as well, just a fundamentally good human being. But since that's been covered, I'm going to give a shout-out to the gentleman sitting next to me. It's the first time we've been together uh, since the election a month, a little over a month ago. Penfield Tate took on the powers that be in this city over the Park Hill golf course issue. He did it effectively. He did it strategically. He did it in opposition to a lot of that quote-unquote dark money that we just talked about. And Speaking of successfully, uh, margins approaching two to one on both ballot issues, the one that they were favoring, and then that sort of subterfuge measure that they put on the ballot to try to, to, try to confuse voters. Good for Penn. Penn? Well, thank you, Eric. We, we had no money, but we had a bunch of great volunteers who just worked their hearts out, and the people of Denver show they care about open space. Um, I just I agree with everything that's been said, but I just wanted to mention... Um, on the sports scene, Demarius Thomas, a young man, 33 years old, just passed away, apparently complications with a seizure disorder. Um, clearly a hero to sports fans here in Denver. Um, and we're just losing people at very young ages and at all ages these days. It's unfortunate. You're here.
I want to add a, uh, two quick, say something nice. Is one, I want to thank all of you who participated in Colorado Gives Day. I know there are a lot of emails out there, a lot of press, but we had an extraordinary day here for PBS 12. Thank you for being a part of that. And as a quick, uh, uh, just an encouragement, if you have not tuned into the Both Sides of the Story uh, season, it wraps up next Friday. It is our championship round uh, featuring students from George Washington High School and Cherry Creek High School. Uh, I will tell you this. It was a fantastic debate. I ended it with walking up to both students and saying, whenever the two of you uh, either want to run for office, I'm ready to volunteer for your campaigns because they were so, so very impressive. And the champion of that debate, which I will not give away yet, will join us at this very table in January as one of our guest panelists. So it's going to be a treat. Tune in next Friday, 730. You will not regret it. For everybody here at PBS 12 and Colorado Inside Out, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night. Bye.